0: Fighting Through Podcast Episode 59, Omaha Beach Part 4 of Overseas and then Over the Top. More great published history. Hello again, I'm Paul Cheel and I wish you yet another warm welcome back to Omaha Beach and Beyond. This is the fourth episode in the Omaha series, so if you haven't listened to the earlier episodes yet, I'd recommend you go to episode 56. Now you may recall I asked on a previous episode if anyone knew the full name of our unsung hero, Private First Class M Prince. Well, I'm so very grateful indeed to Helen Walbridge from Southampton, who's been in touch with some background on him. Helen is a maritime archaeologist, and she's been uncovering quite a few facts about our American ranger hero. And she's directed me to some records on Ancestry, the genealogy website. It turns out his name was Morris Prince, and we know from the records that he died aged 87 in 2007, so it looks like he had a good life. I'm going to pick up more about his story in a forthcoming episode, and I'm hoping to have a photo to share with you as well. I'm going to crack on with the episode now, but I'll first mention to keep listening for a great PS at the end. It's a story that military historian Dan Hill has tracked down about some American bombers who came to a tragic end in planning for a mission to nowhere else other than Brest in France exactly where Morris Prince and the Second Rangers were tasked with attacking themselves. Just to recap, our valiant American heroes of the Second Rangers Battalion have come over from America and settled in various places in the south of England to get acclimatised and trained up. They've gone on to land in Normandy on 6th June in 1944, and after a struggle and many casualties, they've taken Omaha Beach and Pointe de Hoc, along with stacks of German prisoners. Then they've worked and fought their way through the Cherbourg Peninsula in the northwest of France, and then down towards the country's westernmost reaches to Brest, Not far from which is the former base of the infamous pocket battleship, the Admiral Graf Spee, at the Locreste Battery. Just in case it's a few days since you listened to part 3 of the Omaha series in episode 58, I'm now going to read the last couple of minutes to bring you back up to date. So here we go with the closing stages of the last episode. And I've included maps and an itinerary of all the places the soldiers fought through. So if anybody wants to follow this uh, on Google Maps or whatever, the links are there. We were now in the final stages of the actual assault upon the Graf Bay batteries at Lochrist. Final preparations were being undertaken. Artillery and air fighter support were softening and neutralizing the enemy stronghold for us. Our own advances had cleared most of the Jerry outposts which had formed an integral part of the defences of the Lochrist position. The next day saw us in the vicinity of Liette. We were in the approach march and moving in a southerly direction. We advanced along the main highway that led from Brest to Lochrist, Enemy action was fairly heavy. Active enemy patrolling had us fighting for every inch of ground we gained. Sharp clashes were quite frequent. We got 54 prisoners for our efforts. Six more heinies were left behind, deader than the proverbial mackerel. (laughs) We were fortunate in these skirmishes as no casualties were suffered by our side. That night saw us in an enclosed field, practically under the very noses of the jerry. Enemy airbursts constantly cracked and burst overhead, and machine gun fire from pillboxes had us all digging deep. We were at the climax of the game. All night, we sweated out these enemy barrages. Once more, Lady Luck and the gracious Lord above saw us through. September the 9th marked the finish of our labours and mission in this general area. A combat patrol composed of the entire 1st platoon, and which was led by the platoon leader Lieutenant Edlin, broke into the intricate enemy defences, and effected a complete capitulation of the entire battery at Lochrist. A total of 814 prisoners were surrendered to us, and all the coastal guns, artillery, weapons, ammunitions and supplies fell into our hands. The patrol had originally started out as a full platoon, but then it had broken down into several sections, with one section remaining in a rear-covered position to give supporting fire if the need for such ever arose. The four-man group, which was being led by the platoon leader, pushed forward speedily. They bypassed a known enemy guard post and stole their way through a minefield. They then came upon and surprised two men in a machine-gun position, which they captured without a struggle. While two men were left to guard these heinies, the lieutenant and the other man, a sergeant, continued on their way. They gained entrance to an underground hospital and surprised a high-ranking medical officer there. On the demands of the lieutenant, arrangements were made for this Nazi officer to call up the commanding colonel of the Locrist battery to come over and talk about surrender terms of the entire position. The colonel, realising the seriousness of his predicament and knowing his position to be completely surrounded by our forces... ...obliged by coming over. Some arguing ensued between the Colonel and the Lieutenant... ...about the surrender terms. But our Lieutenant finally convinced the Colonel... ...with the expedience of a hand grenade... ...pressed tightly against the Colonel's stomach... ...of the folly of not a total... ...unconditional surrender. P.S. He got it. (laughs) Meanwhile, the rest of the company had entered the enemy stronghold through another opening and had everything under control. Our own colonel arrived on the spot, and an official ultimatum was given to the Nazis. That afternoon at 13.30, our colonel had the desired official document of the Nazis' colonel. This brought to an end the battle of the Graf Speer batteries at Lochrist. The signing and the officiating of the surrender took place in the little town of Saint Mathieu, which is just outside the highly strong point of Locrist. The prisoners were rounded up carefully, searched and sent to the rear. Innumerable and invaluable stocks of enemy weapons and supplies were found and given over to the proper authorities. We got the opportunity to inspect the position and we got the chance to note the effects and damages wrought by our supporting branches of service, the artillery and the air corps. Those big 288 millimeter guns which had caused us those endless and worrisome nights were found to be of immense stature. Their gigantic structure and encased concrete homes had made these giants immune to our shelling and bombing. Their large muzzles easily contained our helmets in their openings, and the size of the shell was equivalent to a good-sized bomb. These huge masses of steel even dwarfed and made look puny the 155 millimeter guns at Pointe de Hoc in comparison. Our company received the mission that night to guard these positions. It was the first time in two weeks that we could relax our vigilance and take things a bit easier. The tenseness and strain were erased from our faces, and once more we became the joyous and carefree rangers we were, and always will be. Beaucoup de wine and liquor had been found in the vast storerooms in these Nazi positions, so we indulged in this treat and became a bit inebriated with our success. That night, we slept in peaceful bliss with slight interruptions from the heavy snoring of those who'd partaken too freely with those liquid stimulants. Although we'd taken care of the main Nazi defences on the Conquette Peninsula, we still had one more job to do. That was the taking of the position at Log, which had stymied us the first time we'd attempted to take it. Now we were in a position to attack from any direction or flank that we desired. For now we'd completely isolated this strong point by our decisive victory at Locrist. The next morning, september tenth, nineteen forty four, we boarded vehicles and rode to the town of Kavaran. There we detrucked and went by foot to a forward assembly area, not more than 400 yards from the enemy position. A heavy artillery shelling and mortar barrage preceded our jumping off. We were now on a flanking side of the enemy. All that stood between us was a deep valley of a 100 yards width. The enemy's position was on a higher piece of terrain than ours, so that he had the advantage and benefit of clearer observation. He was well entrenched, and the impregnable pillboxes he defended were great handicaps to overcome. Even direct hits from our self-propelled and heavy artillery shells were glancing off these huge fortresses without so much as causing the slightest dent or damage. We prepared to leave our line of departure, which was on the top of the hill. We were awaiting the order from our lieutenant. He gave the signal, and away we went over the top, both literally and figuratively. We ran down the side of our hill, which was totally bare of cover. We felt as naked as a new-born babe. Our supporting artillery and mortars were giving us good protective fire. The German resistance was light. There was some small arms fire from enemy outposts and a little mortar shelling which fell to the rear of us. We reached the bottom of the hill and proceeded on our way through a minefield. We had a bit of defilade from the enemy here, but we were still vulnerable to his mortar fire and grenades. We skirted the edge of another minefield and followed along a stream that ran parallel to the Haney position. We were in waste, deep water when the enemy opened up with another mortar barrage which again fell to our rear. We came into a position where we could climb the enemy held hill under cover and concealment, so we proceeded to ascend. We joined up with Charlie Company here they were also attacking this position, but from another flank. We coordinated our efforts, and after a heavy concentration of our artillery had fallen on the enemy, we prepared for the final attack. The assault was made, but we didn't have to fire a shot as the Jerrys had decided to call it quits. They'd raised the flag of truce, which we could see floating from the top of a pillbox. The enemy surrendered to us unconditionally. We got a total of 75 prisoners, which we shared with C Company. We sent them to the rear to the proper authorities while we proceeded to handle all the German supplies, equipment and all the booty and souvenirs we could get our hands on. All kinds of pistols, flags, medals and other valueless articles fell into our personal possession. It was a field day for the loot-hungry and souvenir-crazy rangers. This was a sort of token payment for the fine work we'd done, we reasoned. I'm sure that the Harnies didn't care, or even have the need of the stuff we took from them, where they were going. This concluded the final chapter to the story of the Conquest Peninsula episode. We'd completely taken and wiped out the last pocket of resistance in this area. Our mission was now reported in as accomplished. That night, we were back at Battalion Rear, which still remained at Plumogé. We set up an administrative bivouac, and as we no longer had a combat mission, we were relieved from the 29th Infantry and reverted to the 8th Corps Reserve. We could look back that evening and glance over the results of our campaign. Our company's battle score read something like this. Credited for approximately 600 prisoners besides the wounded, and accounted for 51 jerrys killed. This score is a poor one, as it is only tabulated on the known number of Harnies we killed. How many were not included and not ascertained isn't known to us, but I'm sure a more correct figure would be three times the total we were credited with. On our side of the ledger, we'd sustained two serious casualties, plus a few minor wounds. Then there was the gallant role we'd played in the taking of the Graf Spee batteries with its four huge 280 millimeter pieces. We'd captured innumerable supplies and equipment, artillery and anti-aircraft weapons. The giant bunkers and pillboxes that fell into our hands more than proved the skill of us rangers in combat. This mission had been a typical one for us rangers, and had been conducted and concluded as such. We'd locked horns with the enemy, and we had vanquished him. The penalty we'd extracted from him sort of avenged our fallen comrades, and had made up for all our trying times during the campaign. There'd been many cases of individual valour and heroism. The trials and tribulations we had to endure before we could emerge victorious were many, and the skilful stratagem as worked out by our staff had been excellent. This had all added up to the downfall of the enemy on the Conquet Peninsula. I'd like to take this time to pay my thanks and honest tribute to the other branches of service, and to the brave men of the FFI who so ably and abetted us in our campaign. That's the Free French. Without artillery, air cover, and tank destroyer support, I doubt very much if we could have done the job. It was they that staggered and softened the enemy, so that we could come in and administer the knockout blow to them. We appreciated their labors, and we admired their fine cooperation. We were fortunate to have had them with us. The Crozon Peninsula. La Frette. Our company had come through the campaign of the Conquete Peninsula with flying colors. Our battle strength had not been seriously affected by this battle, and our morale and spirits were as high as ever. We were a bit fatigued by our ordeal in the conflict, but otherwise we were the same carefree and cocky rangers. We were now corps reserve. We took this splendid opportunity to relax and recuperate. We had a nice bivouac area just outside the town of Carvon, which was on the other side of Plumouge, our original base of action. We took life easy and caught up on a million and one things that we'd left unattended by our entrance into battle. Pens and pencils came into play, and letters were dispatched to our loved ones. "'Our booty was carefully wrapped and packed "'so that today souvenirs of the breast campaign "'are proudly displayed in many a ranger's home in America. "'Soap and water, razors and brushes were employed "'to cleanse ourselves thoroughly, "'removing all the filth that we'd accumulated "'in our two-week battle.'" "'For three days we lolled about, "'doing the least of manual labours. "'We had a few daredevils in our company "'who'd got hold of some jerry motorcycles. "'These characters would drive these decre- decrepit pieces "'all about our area. "'The vehicles had more knock to them "'than a fuller brushman. "'Our good peaceful slumber was interrupted many a time by the chug 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 and brrr of these cycles as they made their rounds about the camp. These drivers had more spirit than a barrelful of monkeys and got cussed more than a new recruit by a veteran top kick. On September the 14th we drew all our earthly army belongings onto waiting vehicles and prepared to move out to a new camp. We were 63 enlisted men and three officers strong, and in the best of physical and mental condition. Our new bivouac area was to be an open field which lay off the main highway that linked Landonau with the city of Lesnaven. We had a nice arrangement here, as not only were our tents pitched on beautiful grounds, but the access we had to these two large towns was very much to our liking. During our short stay, we got the chance to visit both these towns, and both were centres of amusement. They had cafes where thirst was a thing unheard of. Many a carefree hour was squandered in these large towns as we drank and made feminine acquaintances freely. The people were most gracious and friendly and acted as perfect hosts. We were welcomed and greeted in a manner for liberators and conquerors and it did our hearts good to associate with these civilians. On September 17th, we again received a combat mission. The city of Brest was now undergoing the final stages of its siege. Our armies were in control of the city proper, but the dockyards and submarine bases were still holding out. The enemy had still possession of fortifications on the Crozon Peninsula, which, like its brother peninsula, La Conquet, was an integral part of the city's defences, from where the enemy was receiving strong and excellent artillery, mortar and anti-aircraft support for the defences of that city. It was under these conditions that we rode forth to our next base of operations, which was to be a rear-assembly area situated outside the town limits of Argyll. Our battalion became attached to the 8th Infantry Division and received the job of relieving Task Force A on the Crozon Peninsula, with the mission of taking the German-held town of Lafrette. After a short briefing... "'and orientation on the general situation, "'we took up the formation of the Approach March "'and set out once more to enter the fray. "'We relieved the friendly troops we were supposed to "'and continued our advance forward. "'There was no enemy resistance "'as fighting on the whole was very much limited. "'The enemy was folding up on this area "'and our troops were picking up "'and taking hundreds of prisoners. "'We got 78 such harnies ourselves.' who surrendered to us without putting up any struggle or defence. They were sent to the rear while we resumed our forward advance. That evening, after a full day's march, we entered the hospitable town of Lafrette, where we picked up 1,600 jerrys, of whom 1,000 were bedridden. That day also saw the capitulation and the total surrendering of the city of Brest to our forces. The Heines hadn't offered us any resistance as we took over that town. It seems like they didn't have any defences here, as Lafrette had been declared an open town and had only been used by the enemy as a hospital base. All the wounded from the city of Brest had been evacuated to here, from across the bay that separated Lafrette from Brest. We've always considered this campaign as the greatest farce of our career, Imagine the rough and tough rangers taking over a hospital town where all the defendants were bedridden or crippled and the personnel entirely non-combatant. Besides the capturing of this town, we also effected the release of 400 American prisoners of war plus other Allied prisoners who had been captured by the Germans in their Brest and Normandy campaigns. These men were turned over to the proper authorities and were assured the best of care that night we established bivouac in a field right in the middle of town we set up control points and checking posts it was a queer scene as under the rules of warfare as handed down from the german convention these harnies were free to walk around and roam about the town as this was an open town And also, due to medical reasons, these men were actually able to go and do whatever they pleased, as long as they remained within certain bounds and limits. It was also strange to us, for while we were the conquerors, slept outdoors on the ground, these prisoners had their own homes and hospitals to use as sleeping quarters. Kel Gare! What a war! Our feelings were a bit appeased, though, by the liquid loot we'd captured, so we drowned our sorrows in alcoholic refreshment and went to bed happy in thought that things could have been worse. The next day we were relieved by a battalion from the 28th Division. We untrucked and rode to a new assembly area. We found ourselves relieved from the 8th Division and once more we reverted to corps reserve. The entire Crozon Peninsula had now fallen into our hands, and the commanding enemy general of the entire Brest Peninsula, General Ramke, became another member of our prisoner of war enclosure. Our new campsite for that day and night was to be a field outside the town of Pont-meur. No new occurrences or happenings took place, so we took things easy and readied ourselves for future battles. Landeneau and Le The following morning, so was on the road again. This time our new area was to be an open field outside the town of Kerbilben, which was situated off the main road that led from Le to Landenau. The entire Brest Peninsula was now completely cleared of enemy except for the strongly fortified positions of Saint-Nazaire and Lorient. Our mission, in our core zone of action, had been completed and fulfilled, so we went into an administrative bivouac. Seven days of pleasantness were spent here as we renewed and remade acquaintances in Leneven and Landonneau. Our second platoon leader, Lieutenant Forobsky, was made First Lieutenant, and a little party was held in his honour. Beaucoup de toasts were drunk, and congratulations were extended. By now, our armies were running rampant over the French soil. The liberation of Paris had been heralded, and our armies were racing through the nations of Belgium and Luxembourg. The war news was of the most optimistic and encouraging nature we were all hoping that this disintegration and this annihilation of the German forces in these countries would bring about the desired, unconditional surrender we were so gallantly striving for. But I'm afraid our prayers remained unanswered, as future happenings and battles were to bring out. On September the 28th, our battalion boarded a train which awaited us at the station at Landoneau. We were off for a new destination, a new nation, and a new battlefield. So that day, 63 enlisted men and three officers loaded onto these antique boxcars known as 40 and 8s, and departed for new lands and new adventures. Train Ride If ever we had cause to curse the modes of conveyance of the two-and-a-half-ton truck... We now had reason to curse more vehemently this new and first train ride we were to undergo. If man could ever devise a more hideous and cruel method of torture than this, I had as yet to have seen it or heard of it. To say our journey was tedious, monotonous and unbearably uncomfortable, I would not be exaggerating in the least bit. We were tightly crammed and packed into these old and decrepit French boxcars, commonly referred to as hommes et huit chevaux. Forty men and eight horses, which had seen better days in World War I. These crude affairs I doubt seriously if they could have held half the number of us comfortably... Yet, there we were, 35 men, plus all our equipment, rations and weapons, which took up more space than we did, the soldiers. The cars were filthy and dirty before we entered them, and by the time we ended our travels, a pigsty would have appeared to have been a place of sanitation in comparison. The only compensation we got from this trip was the excellent opportunity to view first-hand the landscape that is beautiful France and to derive the experience that only such a journey could entail. Our morale and spirit, paradoxically enough, were never better. The more crowded we became, the more we joked. The dirtier we got, the more we laughed. And the more we travelled, the better we liked it. Our sleeping quarters and positions we assumed when night fell looked like something out of a Rube Goldberg cartoon. Heads, limbs and bodies were sprawled all about <laughs> and no one person was ever found that could claim his own physical belongings. There wasn't an even an inch on the floor that wasn't covered by someone or a part of someone's anatomy. A mortar base plate was turned into a pillow and a K-ration box, miraculously enough, became a bed. When dawn would break and time for a rising would come up, A general scramble would ensue to make sure that the right person would would come up with the right limbs. Inventory was taken daily to make sure that all bodies and limbs were present. What a life and what an ordeal, yet an experience we wouldn't want to have missed for a million dollars. For 750 weary miles we endured our pains and miseries, drinking in the scenery. The picturesque villages and the larger towns were always refreshing and welcoming sights to behold. At each stop, the people would crowd and mill about our train to greet and cheer us, and to exchange their food and vegetables for items in our K-rations. A critical shortage in cigarettes didn't aid to our hurt feelings during the journey. Roll your owns with Jerry tobacco became a popular smoke on the train. The odor and stink that would only come from honey tobacco didn't neutralise the already present stench from our body odor and from the accumulated dirt and filth. But we didn't mind. We got used to these nuisances and didn't let it bother us. We knew that things were rough in the ETO, the European Theatre of Operations. After five days and nights of continual travelling, We reached our point of disembarkation, which was the city of Languillon, France. From there, we loaded onto awaiting vehicles and departed for our new base of operations, which was to be a wooded area approximately five kilometres from the cathedral city of Arlon, Belgium. We crossed the border that separated France and Belgium and found ourselves on new terrain, in a new nation. Even then, we could look back and scan over our progress. From our small beachhead on the Normandy coast, our armies had expanded and exploited our gains, fighting all the way, so that now they were actually battling on the so-called holy soil of the Third Reich itself. What sacrifices, hardships and tribulations we've had to overcome. What problems of logistic and supplies we had to solve, and what personal inflicted agonies and miseries we've had to defeat so that we could so relentlessly drive forward. No one will ever know, or no one will ever be able to write about. It's with small wonder and lots of pride that I'm proud that I'm a soldier in the United States Army, and it's with more egotism and conceit that I am proud to be a member of the battalion which bears the gallant fighting name of Ranger. On October the 3rd, the Ranger Battalion found itself bivouacked in the forests outside the city of Arlon, Belgium. We had been relieved from the 8th Corps and we were now attached to the 9th Army as reserve troops. We were ready and prepared to embark into another phase of combat in a new nation of Europe or anywhere for that matter that our country deemed it necessary for us to fight. Chapter Three Arlon, Belgium Our new habitat in the forests outside the city of Arlon wasn't exactly the mecca spot of the universe. "'Continual rain and dampness made our area resemble a sump hole, "'and the cold winds that raged against our pup tents "'had us all shivering and shaking. "'If it weren't for the proximity of our camp "'to the entertaining city of Arlong, "'I'd hate to think of the consequences we'd have had to suffer. "'Our battalion received a rear echelon mission. "'We became the guardians,' and protectors of 9th Army Headquarters. So while we were here, our functions were of an administrative nature. We had a complete and final reorganisation of the battalion here. Other companies, who'd been less fortunate in the breast campaign as far as casualties were concerned than ourselves, received new men and officers. Supplies and ordnance equipment were reissued, and other routine and necessary duties were attended to. Our company didn't receive any new men, but we did regain a few old men who'd been wounded on D-Day and who'd finally caught up with a unit at this place. A light training schedule was drawn up for us. It wasn't too strenuous, but it kept us in trim, both physically and mentally. We took small hikes, ran section problems and brushed upon our marksmanship. We also received a good deal of briefings stressing the defences and structure of the Siegfried line. For recreational facilities, we received passes to visit the fair city of Aolong. This was a pleasure and privilege since Aolong, being a large, modern city, was quite a centre of amusement and entertainment. Cognac and beer could be had for a price, there were many food stores here, Fruits and vegetables were plentiful, so we were able to supplement our army rations. Bake shops and ice cream parlours gave us the first opportunity since our landing on the continent to indulge in that luxury of eating cake and ice cream. A treat that was highly treasured and prized and one that found many of us going back for seconds and thirds. Movie houses and photo places did extremely well as far as our patronage was concerned and the department stores and the shops where little knick-knacks and souvenirs could be bought did a flourishing business when we went to town we did it both literally and figuratively we did have one setback though in our visits to this city It seems as though there were a lot of brass and BTOs, big-time operators, who roamed the streets, alerted to see that the troops didn't forget their military discipline. Well, it seems that we had a few boys who were a bit lax and negligent on that score, so that some reports filtered back to our company commander via the battalion commander concerning this behaviour. A restriction was imposed on us, and the ones guilty were relieved and deprived of their rank, Our restrictions didn't last long and we were again free to roam the streets of Arlong perhaps we were a bit more conscious of military courtesy and discipline but we never lost our cockiness that marks the ranger from the ordinary GI a precedent that was to be established in this area was that the first ranger dance we were to have on the European continent was held here we'd gotten hold of a special service unit to furnish us with a band "'We'd made arrangements in town for a hall to house the affair, "'and our kitchen had prepared cake and refreshments for the occasion. "'We were all set. "'All that was needed now to make the affair a success were the women. "'The night of the dance arrived, the band arrived, the rangers arrived, "'the refreshments arrived. "'But alas and alack, where in the heck were the women? "'What an embarrassing situation.' Ten soldiers for every girl present. "'What few damsels that did come "'couldn't dance to American music. "'What a night! "'Most of the fellows decided to take off on their own "'to find a partner to bring to the dance. "'I guess some of these men must have found "'the women they were searching for. "'Yet somehow or other, they never did come back.' Others who were making a tour of the bars and cafes in search of feminine companions got themselves into a condition where they couldn't come back. By the time it rolled round to say adieu, there was hardly a soul in the dance hall. What an affair, but I doubt if there was a one that didn't have a good time that night one way or another. It was also in this area that we got the honour of having Lieutenant General Simpson... "'Commander-General of the 9th Army, to review and address us. "'It was a feather in the cap for us Rangers to receive this privilege. "'As it isn't every day, one can get one of these big boys away from his duties "'to pay his respects and tributes to your outfit. "'He heaped his praise on us Rangers for our fine work and efforts.' He personally pinned several medals and decorations on the breasts of certain individuals who'd earned them either on D-Day or in the breast campaign. Cameramen and news photographers who were present made this a complete field day. All in all, this gave us good reason for the celebration that followed that evening. During our mission of guarding the Ninth Army Headquarters, we received an enemy paratroop alert that found us all prepared and ready to go into action against these enemies. I can't recall the exact day it happened, but it came about in the hours of early morning. We were sound asleep, dreaming blissfully of better days to come, when out of the dark night, the guards started to waken us. We were informed of the situation which happened to be enemy paratroopers dropping in our near vicinity and threatening army headquarters. We hastily dressed, grabbed our weapons and donned our equipment. A slight downfall of rain had turned our area into a mud hole and had turned the night into pitch blackness. We boarded our vehicles which had been standing by and set out to contest the enemy. "'It was a cold, miserable night. "'We arrived at our assembly area in town "'to gain further information of the situation. "'We learned that we were too late, "'as the enemy had already been taken care of "'by other friendly units "'into whose area the troopers had landed. "'Being there was no need for us, "'there was just one thing we could do, "'and that was to go back to our holes "'and try to make up for all our lost slumbers.' We again boarded our vehicles, cussed all the fates and all those responsible for this deal and went back to our camp. We got back drenched to the skin, more asleep than awake. We hit our tents, took up our prone horizontal positions and resumed our acquaintances with Dreamland. On October the 21st, 1944, or after an approximate stay of three weeks in this area, we received the order to strike tents. We packed our equipment, rolled our rolls, and once more set ourselves to make a new journey to new lands. We entrucked and prepared to hit the road. We were 70 enlisted men and three officers. Our spirits were excellent and morale never better. Once more, we were to cross a national border. This time, we were to cross the Belgian line and to enter the garden nation of Luxembourg to continue in our duties as guardians and protectors. Only this time, we were with the 1st Army of the 12th Army Group and attached to our old friends of the Brest Campaign, the 8th Corps. (laughs) Chapter 4. Esch, Luxembourg Of all the places and towns we've had the pleasure of stopping at in our travels over the continent, about the most pleasant and enjoyable stop we made was the time we visited Esch in Luxembourg. Even today, when the revered name of Esch is mentioned, a faraway look appears in the eyes of those fortunate ones who had the privilege of being there, and a hush descends upon the assembly as memories of happy bygone days are relived. For the first time since our stay at saint jean de Day, France, we were to be billeted indoors, in nice, clean barracks, which had formerly housed the members of the Hitler Jugend movement in this area. We had a splendid set and had the use of all the facilities that such a camp would naturally possess. Not only were we freed from leading an outdoor life, which at this time of the year was highly undesirable... But we had the comforts of a warm barracks, a day and recreation room, shower room and latrine facilities. This is the kind of home a soldier dreams of when he's in a foxhole. Moreover, we were in approximate distance to the charming city of Esh, where many a gay and happy moment was frivolously squandered, where the wine and whiskey flowed freely, and where the girls were more than friendly to our advances." Our duties here were of rear echelon functions, so we were able to take advantage of our administrative duties by going to town nightly, or as often as we were permitted. Outside of a light training schedule that occupied our daylight hours, we were free to enjoy our evenings in any way or manner we saw fit. We never had to bother about laundry or having our ODs neat and pressed, since for a few cigarettes or a chocolate bar we could get all these things done as well as any repairs or sewing for which we had need since Esch was very much the equivalent of Arlon as a centre of attraction it had the similar movie houses, cafes, bake shops stores, photoshops etc that one found in Arlon I believe that the city of Esch is about the closest thing that I've seen that could compare with our smaller sized cities back in the States As we were about the only American troops in the area, we had the full run of the town. The people were most friendly and courteous. In our short stay here, strong bonds of friendship were made. Many of the residents were well-educated and could speak English well, so the lingual handicaps no longer barred us from their intimacy. One company, meanwhile, had one addition made to its officer personnel – We received Lieutenant Wilson from our own headquarters company to give us over strength in this department for the first time since Brest. We made a good gain when Lieutenant Wilson joined our company, as his merits and skill under future combat conditions proved him to be the fine Ranger officer that he is. Our morale and spirits were never better, and it's no wonder, as we've never had it better than when we were here. So when our day of departure rolled about, we packed our belongings in dismal silence and prepared to load onto our vehicles. That day, November the 3rd, saw us saying our farewells to the people from our initial starting point in the town. With sad adieus and fond au revoirs, we rode off into the distant horizon to a new base of operations somewhere in Belgium. Chapter 5. Raren Belgium. The pains and miseries of a cold november day were very much present on our journey that brought us through the north of luxembourg into belgium that morning. For seven cruel hours we endured this frost while we huddled closer to one another for mutual protection against this wintry onslaught. Our new campsite was to be in an orchard off a secondary road that led to the main highway linking the city of Rairang to Eupen. We were just inside the German border and for some of us it gave us our first chance to cross this line and to enter the Third Reich. The weather had taken a distinct turn for the worse. Rain, snow and mud plagued our bivouac area the entire duration of our stay. It wasn't long before our field was turned into a mud hole and swamp. Deep ruts which were left by our vehicles and also by the vehicles and tanks of neighbouring units didn't help this situation at all. Three times daily, we had to traverse this swamp to reach our open-aired kitchen. Although our kitchen was no more than 50 or 70 yards away, We always worked up somewhat of an appetite, just in getting over there, across this knee-deep sump hole. The road outside was no better off. The rain and snow, plus the absence of labourers, had turned these lines of communication into slimy, slippery and muddy avenues of transportation. Our army's engineers fought and worked gallantly to keep these supply routes open, and did a valiant job of it. But still many a vehicle would fall into a mud bank and be held there until a release could be effected with the aid of either another vehicle or a bulldozer. While we were there, we got ourselves married, army speaking. We became engaged and hitched to Combat Command, which was composed of units of the 5th Armoured Division, plus a reconnaissance outfit and a platoon of tank destroyers. From then on, we were to have been mechanised and part of an armoured task force. A combat mission was handed down to our company while we were there. We were supposed to have tested our new partnership, but due to certain circumstances, this job was never carried out. Our mission was to have been to take a couple of Siegfried Line towns and then to push onward to a final objective. But it appears we couldn't cross our line of departure until units of the 28th Division had taken the heavily defended town of Schmidt so that they could protect our flanks and act as a hinge for us to pivot on in our attack. Well, the doorboys of the infantry unit accomplished their mission but sustained terrific casualties in doing so. When the enemy launched a strong counterattack, those brave soldiers couldn't hold on to the ground they'd so courageously won, and they had to relinquish that key town. For two days, we waited fully equipped to go forth as soon as the 28th Division regained the town, but continual enemy reinforcements in men, artillery, and other materials from their reserve positions in the Cologne area held them off. So our mission was cancelled before we even had a chance to start it. All we could do then was to shrug our shoulders, unpack and prepare to settle down as best as we could in this mired area. We made a recreation room of a basement in the house that bordered our field. It was a fairly roomy place and the owner was a friendly civilian who didn't mind our using this part of his house. There were some chairs, stools and a couple of tables so we turned this into our gambling and writing den. At night we'd find refuge and a better place to sleep in, in the barns that surrounded our area. This was much better than sleeping in open pup tents and on the camp ground. A surprise inspection tour by our Supreme Commander, General Eisenhower, with General Omar Bradley plus their entourage, gave many of us our first opportunity to see these high officers at close quarters. It was a nice feeling to think these men had taken precious time from their never-ending labours to come down and see how the lowly fighting men existed. A couple of our men got the chance to speak to these great men, and even today they recall the exact words of those short but never-to-be-forgotten conversations. Since our campsite was situated in a locality that was enclosed and enveloped by key military cities, such as Verrier, Liège, Oupin, Malmedy, we were constantly subjected to the threat of that new secret weapon of the Nazi supermines, the buzz bomb, or rocket. These missiles of death would fly over our area several times during the day, and quite frequently during the night. Although they flew overhead, none ever landed in our immediate vicinity. A few did drop near enough to cause the earth under us to quake and shiver as a hula hula dances a sarong in a storm. On November the 14th, our battalion received a combat mission. So on that morning, we struck tents, threw all our belongings into duffel bags, rolled our rolls and prepared to move out. "'That afternoon found us detrucking at our forward-assembly area in the Hurtgen Forest. "'Snow had begun to fall, while the frost and cold was making life very miserable for us. "'Our company strength was seventy-one enlisted men and four officers. "'Discomforts caused by the weather had us all bitching and cursing. "'We were mad.' We wanted to get at the enemy who was causing us all these agonies. We were sore enough to tackle him bare-fisted. I'm happy to state, though, that we didn't. As God only knows, it was a tough enough job to manhandle the enemy with all the steel and metal that was at our command. And there I'm going to draw to a close. We'll pick up the story in the next episode when the Rangers go to Germany, into the lion's den. If you've read and enjoyed Dad's book and have access to Amazon, I'd be grateful if you could spare the time to post a review on it. It's feeling a little unloved at the moment because the last review was 2018 and it'd be nice to get a few new ones to bolster up its standing in anticipation of the paperback coming out shortly. So that's Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg on Amazon. Thank you in anticipation for that. And now here's the PS. I want to share with you a story posted by historian Dan Hill on social media. Dan's a military historian, battlefield guide, historical researcher with a master's degree in British military history. Back in January, Dan posted the following poignant story on Twitter, and it backs straight into Morris Prince's story. At around the time that Morris and the Second Rangers were taking on Brest in France, some of their air comrades were taken off in support to bomb the place, but never made it. Here's the story from Dan. Growing up near the village of Weston in Hertfordshire, even fifty years after World War two, there was always a story about two American bombers crashing in the local woods. I've always wanted to know more, so I decided to investigate. On 26th of August 1944, a group of B-17 bombers took off from bases around the UK to attack defenses near the German-held port of Brest in France. One of the aircraft that day was the impressively named Ding Dong Daddy, piloted by Lieutenant George E. Smith from Arizona. The aircraft took off early that morning and was to begin the complex forming-up process with other B-17s before heading towards France together. A few minutes later, over the village of Weston, observers on the ground heard a roar as one plane accelerated. At just after 9am and a few thousand feet up, Ding Dong Daddy collided with a second B-17 in the formation. Immediately, both planes burst into flame. Ding Dong Daddy losing a wing, and the second breaking into four pieces. Ding Dong Daddy was seen spiralling to earth in a flat spin, the centrifugal forces making it impossible for anyone to bail out. The second B-17 in several pieces fell much more quickly. Five parachutes emerged in the following seconds. Tragically, for one of those who bailed out... A piece of burning wreckage caught in his canopy, setting it alight, leaving him to fall from the sky. A second landed safely, but was hit by aircraft wreckage and killed. The crew of Ding Dong Daddy had no chance. All nine were killed. On the ground, Florence Webb who'd ironically been evacuated from London to avoid air raids, was in her home nearby when one of the aircraft bombs, knocked loose by the contact, crashed through the roof of her bungalow and exploded. Florence was killed instantly, as was eight-month-old David Clements, whom she held in her arms. On a sunny morning... In August 1944, in the space of two minutes, in a quiet village in Hertfordshire, 16 people had lost their lives. The crew of the two B-17s were buried locally, with most being repatriated to the States in the years after the war. Today only two remain in the UK, both buried at Maddingley American Cemetery near Cambridge. I decided to try to find the grave of young David Clements, Searching the churchyard, I couldn't find it, so I went inside the church and asked the only couple there if they could help me, and the gentleman said, well yes, he was my brother. Wow. I'm very fortunate in that I get to travel across Europe visiting famous and infamous battlefields, but today I realised I'm missing one of the most obvious of all. Next time you wonder where stories of bravery, sacrifice and courage can be found, look up above you. Listener, you can check out the Twitter link to all of this in the show notes, and uh, you'll also see Dan's story, plus quite a few photos. And just a bit more background about Dan, he's based in the UK, he does talks and lectures, free webinars with talks from various experts. And at the time of recording, there was one coming up by Dr. Mark Baldwin on Alan Turing and the Enigma Machine. So that's free webinars. Check out uh, Dan's website. And uh, Dan also organises battleground visits you might be interested in. And those currently planned, but I guess cancelled because of the virus, include a retreat to Dunkirk and also the Battle of Berlin. So that's more information at danhillmilitaryhistorian.com. And that wasn't an advert, that was just me plugging Dan's stuff, because he so kindly let me stick his uh, Twitter stuff into the episode. You've been listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 59, Omaha Beach, part 4 of Overseas and then Over the Top, by Private First Class Morris Prince. I'm going to make a big effort to get the rest of this book out in the next couple of episodes in the near future so keep your ears peeled sergeant thank you so much for listening please do hear me next time i'm paul Cheel saying bye bye now